listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. Our guest for this week is Nathaniel Dennison, a filmmaker and the CEO of the Through My Eyes Foundation, which seeks to empower migrant communities by giving them film equipment and training so they can capture their own journeys and experiences. He is talking to us today about his trips to Central and South America, including his recent harrowing experience in the Darien Gap in Panama, as well as his work across the Americas with migrant communities. Your hosts for this week are Nusha Ghosh and Aidan Thomason. Before we dive into our interview, we'd like to start this conversation with some important distinctions between refugees, asylum seekers, and migrants. Refugee is a legal definition given to someone by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or UNHCR. It is given to someone who proves that they have fled war, violence, conflict, or persecution and have crossed an international border to find safety in another country, as per the UNHCR website. In other words, a refugee is someone who has fled war or persecution due to a threat of their own safety and has a claim that falls under the definition given in the 1951 UN Refugee Convention. Crossing an international border is also an important component to being a refugee legally. People who have fled persecution in their home region but remain displaced inside their home country are called IDPs, or internally displaced persons. There are even more IDPs around the world than there are refugees. Asylum seeker is the legal term for individuals who have fled their own country due to persecution or some other threat to their safety and are directly petitioning another government to give them asylum. This could be because their specific concern is not addressed in the criteria to be a refugee or because they went directly to another country rather than register with the UNHCR first. Seeking asylum is a right included in the International Declaration of Human Rights. However, not everyone who is forced to leave home is covered under these two categories, which is where the term migrant comes in. Migrant is essentially a catch-all term for everyone who has to leave their home because of poverty, hunger, disease, climate, or another issue threatening their safety that is not directly persecution by regime or group. Migrant is also used to cover economic migrants who travel across countries simply looking for work. For example, Venezuelans are often called migrants because most of the nearly 6 million people who have fled the country left because the government actions had led to hunger, disease, and unsurvivable instability, not because the Maduro regime had directly targeted them although there are also thousands of Venezuelan asylum seekers and refugees, too, that are displaced because of persecution from the Venezuelan government. Climate refugees are also legally migrants, usually because they are fleeing natural disasters or worsening environmental conditions rather than human persecution. The term migrant is also often used incorrectly to delegitimize the needs of those fleeing violence, so be on the watch for that in the media. For example, if you hear a news story about migrants crossing the Mediterranean, they are often actually refugees from Syria or another country fleeing threats that would fall under the UNHCR's definition of a refugee. Because if they are refugees and asylum seekers, they are entitled to ask for safe asylum under international law and turning them away without a hearing is illegal. In this interview with Nathaniel in our upcoming season next year, we will be talking about and with asylum seekers and other forced migrants. We want to be clear that these are still individuals who are forced to flee their homes, even though the reasons for doing so vary, as do their legal statuses. We'll be talking more about the nuances of these issues and how individuals experience them next year, but this is enough to get us started. Here is Anusha's conversation with Nathaniel. everyone and welcome to another episode of Seeking Refuge. Uh, today we have Nathaniel Dennison uh, who is the founder of the Through My Eyes Foundation and a filmmaker. And Nathaniel, thank you so much for partnering up with Seeking Refuge and allowing us to interview you. Yeah, of course. I admire and always love to speak with anybody that tries to highlight migrant and refugee issues. First off, how are you? I, I know you've had a busy few days, so um, just how are you? I mean, yesterday was my birthday, but life since getting back from the Daring Gap has been different, weird. Uh, I'm moving into post for editing the documentary that they've been making, but it's been a lot. Uh, I've been working with Asylum Seekers for the last three years. But I think everything came toppling down with what everything, everything that happened in the Darien Gap when I came back to the States after what happened there, it just kind of all hit me like three years all at one time, uh, which I mean, yeah, I've been, I spent all my birthday yesterday with doctors and I have to go to therapy over stuff. It's been a lot, but I'm doing a lot better because that happened like right at the beginning of October when I finally came back to the States and 
I'm on the upward progression, trying to get better on everything. Yeah, that's good. A happy belated birthday. And I'm so sorry that you've had to deal with that. No, I mean, I wouldn't say sorry. I make the choice to do that. I go to try to help other people and they don't have a decision. So anything I take on is just a fraction of what they're going through. And I try to always remind myself, like, no matter how I feel, like I'm there to try to help others and they're going through something monumentally more. So my second question for you is uh, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, your life story and your background. Uh, my life story, uh, try to make it brief. So I don't want to make it sound like I've had a bad childhood. I do have a loving mom, but she wasn't with the best of men. I ended up becoming homeless as a teenager. I traveled around. I trade hopped. A uh, filmmaker eventually took me off the streets in Chicago. I got my GED and decided I wanted to follow in his shoes. He also designs and runs haunted attractions, and that's where I had my start, and that went into theater and everything. So I go from a homeless kid traveling around the country to suddenly becoming a pretty, I wouldn't say I'm a like well-off or a good, but becoming a filmmaker and photographer and theater person that was getting paid to travel the actual world, uh, seeing my work in magazines and everything, and jump forward to when I was hitting 30, right after I moved back from Thailand, where I taught English and photography to students there. I had an interaction with a group of kids that took me to an abandoned monastery, and they thought it was going to be an entire day event. But I only, to do photography, it lasted me all of 45 minutes. And they're like, oh, we want to hang out more. So I gave my cameras, and they ended up filming the story and telling about the monastery and how it became abandoned. And one of them's great-grandfather actually used to be in that monastery. I, I got with, when I got home, I in Thailand, I got with one of the other teachers, Sawit, and I was like, hey, can you translate this for me? And he explained there was a story. So he helped me edit this entire film they put together and shared it with the school. One of the kids who was failing at the time reached out to me. He was like, I want to be like you when I grow up. Like, I want to do, like, be able to make films. He's like, but I'm from poverty. I don't have these opportunities. And I told him about my story of being homeless and how somebody gave me an opportunity. And I ended up actually getting robbed in Thailand of all my gear. And my insurance at the time was like, oh, there's actually a clause. We will not, we don't have to like reimburse you because you're in a third world country and you knowingly took expensive gear there. So I moved back to the States and that's where the idea of Through My Foundation was born. I just kept on thinking about these kids and that kid actually now just graduated college last year. He's a photographer in Bangkok uh, and does so much better than me. Uh, but the idea of filmmaking is what saved my life. And then when I was in Thailand and seeing like, Hey, I can make a positive impact. And when I showed that video to the school and they became these cool kids, like, what if I just like, instead of me being the filmmaker and the photographer gave my gear to people and then taught them how to do it themselves. And so I let them tell their own story through their eyes. So through my eyes was born and it took a year and a half of shadowing of underneath other nonprofits and people that ran businesses. I never actually paid for college, but I would sit in on classes at VCU and, and that's in Richmond, Virginia, and watch about business and nonprofit and just like write down notes. And yeah, the nonprofit took off. That actually leads me on to my next question. Uh, can you tell us more about your foundation through my eyes, uh, what exactly it does and what progress you've made through that nonprofit? The entire thing is stop speaking up for others, but give them a platform for their voices to be heard. I believe in the anything that we do, but in the humanitarian world, paternalism is an ongoing theme and people deciding what's best for people. And I'm not going to say that good deeds are bad, but whenever I go to partner with other organizations, ask them, like, if you were to stop everything you're doing right now, would the people you're helping continue on an upward momentum of progression, would they plateau out, stay where you, like, you've done the good you've done, they've at least they'll stay at that level. Or did you create a need for yourself to where like, if you pull yourself out, they go back to where they used to be. I don't know if my idea is going to work yet. Uh, the idea is to give them the opportunity to tell their story, to say what they need and how they foresee like a better future and just listen to people and stop speaking for them, like genuinely listen. And what better means than through media, because it's accessible and you can watch it via phone, you can listen to it, it is everywhere everybody even people within poverty have a means not everybody but a greater number of connection and through youtube or any type of video source as for what is my nonprofit done i started my nonprofit in the quarter of 2017 
So I was just getting it going. And then 2018 rolled around and all the news of the Caravanas came in. Uh, and I made the decision. I created this nonprofit to amplify others' voices. I need to go to this migrant caravan. Here, Nathaniel refers to the uprise of Caravanas in 2018, when Honduran asylum seekers traveled in packs or caravanas across Mexico to the U.S. to escape the political oppression and organized crime that threatens them in Honduras. By traveling in caravanas, they work to accomplish two goals. Number one, make the long trip across Mexico less deadly, and number two, pressure immigration officials to take them seriously, as asylum seekers who travel in caravanas often arrive in large numbers. I found myself, I ended up, I was running the family side of the main shelter for the big caravana of 2018 in Tijuana, but quickly the U.S. government decided that I must be a leader of Antifa and one of the people organizing caravanas and riots against the government. And they put me on a secret watch list with 58 other people. And when I was crossing over from Tijuana to San Diego, I got detained and held for eight hours and interrogated. And I lost everything I'd worked on up until that point when I lost all my gear and everything. Uh, And then, yeah, the watch list came out. Far right wing people were sending death threats. There's like all these sneer videos about me. Uh, People trying to say like, yeah, he's clearly not a filmmaker. He's just like Antifa, but using this as like an end to get into places. So I lost everything. And then ACLU reached out and they're like, hey, we're going to file a lawsuit against the government. And we want you to be one of the plaintiffs. So it's me and two of the directors of El Ocho Lado, legal humanitarian lawyer group. And that leads into two years ago, I resumed my work. But what was only supposed to be two months of working with the Caravana, and I was actually supposed to go to work on Mount Everest with the Sherpa youth down to South Africa, go out to the Congo and and indigenous people here in the United States. All that went out the window because suddenly I can't leave the country without being detained. So I decided I was going to do this project about asylum seekers and just go as big as I could on it. So for the last two years, from Matamoros to Tijuana, the entire United States-Mexico border, I've been traveling the entire way, every single border point, uh, going to every single shelter. And then I've been traveling all the way down to Central America. I've traveled with multiple caravanas. I've worked in shelters. I've lived in Tapachula, Chiapas, where is the first point when they enter Mexico. So it's uh, the other US-Mexico or US border because we help train and get the money for them to stop migrants from down there. So all my work, this year, I'm moving in. I'm finally, like I said, moving into editing. And that means early next year, what I envisioned years ago is finally going to come to life and be put out to the public. So when people ask me, like, how can I prove, like, what good it's done as far as film and raising awareness, it hasn't done that yet. Uh, I was met with a lot of challenges I never thought would happen. I never thought wanting to go to help people would put me on a government watch list and get me detained. Like, I was just detained when I did the Daring Gap by the Panama government. Uh, nine months ago, I was held for multiple days in Mexico City trying to fly down to Tapachula, not even to work with the caravana, but they were like, oh, we know you work with the migrants and my passport flag. So they just held me in a room for multiple days. It's been kind of, it slowed me down. And unfortunately, the people that were helping me with the nonprofit, it's a scary thing. ACLU said like, hey, if you work with him, there is a chance like the government might start watching you. They, I have the FBI, CIA, ICE, all of them have large files on me, and they're trying to find anything to connect me to anything nefarious, which they've not done, obviously. But a lot of people that were supposed to be working with a nonprofit did back out out of fear of, like, this is a scary thing. Like, seeing me get detained and nobody knows where I'm at until finally, they're like, it would take U.S. government and the embassies finally all reach out. I'm like, oh, wait, you have that, nothing. We'll deport them back to the country. So it's largely left me doing this mostly alone, but I do have friends that help to whatever capacity they can on the like sidelines. But outside of the video work, I've helped establish several medical sites to help migrants, especially when the COVID hit. I just connect people. I connect lawyers with medical groups and donation groups, help with shelters and raising awareness and bring it up. I've helped over, I think at this point, 2,000 people and families get asylum and be that sometimes it's not anything for the public, but I'll have them record their stories and I'll give it out to the appropriate people, the lawyers. 
to this day from the first caravana back in 2018, which isn't actually the first, it's been going on forever, but that really hit the news. I still do English lessons and stuff with the kids I lived with in the shelter back then. I, I make sure I check up on them whenever I'm, I travel all over the country. I stop in and see how families are adjusting and moving forward and do what I can to help. But that's all the sideline stuff that I don't want to promote on my nonprofit page because it's, I don't ever want to make money or get rich. It'd be nice to like not constantly be broke. My work isn't always just about like, hey, look at this. I want the films created by them, but I believe in just helping people just to help people. People did that for me when I was homeless. Do you, do you have any uh, idea why they would use Antifa as a label to detain you? And um, do you think that that label had anything to do with prejudice or bias against refugees? So I would, I really should have called Muhammad like on things. I don't want to answer or say too much on this because like I keep going into detail about like stuff that's going on with the FBI while our lawsuit's still in the place. Uh, but if you ever seen any memes about all people trying to figure out a smartphone or the computer and they don't understand anything, they're just hitting random stuff. Imagine that, but with people's understanding of what they think Antifa is. There's the idea of the right perpetrates. It's like this group and it's these people that like just hate America when Antifa was something that America, like we all inherently should be anti-fascist and just shorten like Nathaniel if you call me Nate. I'm still Nathaniel. It's just people call me Nate. The government does not have a grasp on what Antifa is. They just create an idea of what it is. They think Antifa is, oh, it's the people that want to like burn us to the ground. I don't go to any Antifa events or protests where it's like people and they wear Antifa shirts or whatever. I actually believe there are multiple parts to any organizing or event or social change and protests and doing stuff like that is one of them. But there's multiple parts to a clock, different gears, and I don't do any of that. I feel... What I have to offer doesn't include me standing with like a sign and protesting stuff or moving. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's just not what I can offer for that. As far as how what the government thinks, I honestly don't know. I have read the files and hopefully when the case is over, they'll be public for me to share to anyone. And if you've ever watched, like it's always sunny in Philadelphia and there's Charlie in the mail room downstairs and he's like trying to find that and all these different names all over the wall and he's connecting stuff that has no connection. And he's like, just going wild over trying to like find a connection to something. And that is what all these files, like they're trying to connect. Oh, well, we know that Mr. Dennison was in this city and there's a known person that did something was in the exact same city of like 3 million people, but because they're in the same one, they probably might've had a meeting. Yeah. I don't know. They're trying to build a narrative where Antifa also goes hand in hand with caravanas and trying to attack the American way of what they're trying to perpetrate is the ideal American way but none of it makes sense. And so do you think like the way that they've labeled you as an Antifa, do you think that's connected to, you know, like the prejudice that surrounds refugees? Uh, prejudice that surrounds refugees and those that help them. In the government's eyes, it doesn't matter how good of a person you are. If you're going to help these people that they're trying to like shine a light on is like these horrible people that are coming into our country to steal our job, like use our systems and, take advantage and then leave or hurt people because you want to go help those people. You're changing the narrative of what they're trying to portray them as. So I would say, yes, it does fall in hand in hand with that. My next question is, uh, if you are comfortable discussing this, can you tell us about your trip to the Darien Gap and what it taught you about Black migrants? Let's pause the episode here. Before we hear Nathaniel's personal experience with the Darien Gap, let's learn a little bit about what the Darien Gap is. The Darien Gap is located between North and South America, essentially the strip of land that connects Colombia to Panama on the map. To cross from South to North America, migrants, including those fleeing from Haiti, must travel through the Darien. According to Doctors Without Borders, over 120,000 migrants crossed the Darien this year for a better life. And as you listen onwards, you'll hear how dangerous the trip is for them. Uh, The Darien Gap. So since the George Floyd horrible 
just injustice happened. Uh, I, on top of the work about asylum seekers, started to do a film about Black migration. And it's something that has not been largely talked about as a whole. And now that has had me, all, I live, I was, that's part of the time I was living in Tapachula, Chiapas, and there's about 27,000 Black migrants there, but the number is constantly in fluctuation. Uh, and in different points of the U.S.-Mexico border, Tijuana being the main one. Uh, but while all these people I work with and they're, they're talking about their experiences, it always came back about the Darien Gap. And in Tijuana, I had my main team, Jack, Bobby, and Stanley. I helped them after they finished filming for Tijuana get asylum into the United States. Two of them live in Atlanta, one in Miami, and they're doing good. Uh, but they had started sitting, because like I, I don't film. That's one of the big roles when they're doing their projects. They don't need me or anybody else filming their stories. I will do a few days showing up with them around, but I'll photograph behind the scenes. And they're always like, give me the photos, I'll share them with people. And they share them with a lot of people all over, including in South America, where a lot of people still lived in Chile and Brazil. Uh, but they were starting to finally, okay, we're going to make our move to try to come up. Those people reached out like, hey, who is that guy with the camera? Because they explained, oh, no, we're working with this guy. He's humanitarian. He gives us cameras and he helps us. Like, And we tell our stories. And these people are like, we want to show the story of the Darien Gap. So I just randomly got this call on WhatsApp and, hey, you're the American guy that gives people cameras, right? You're friends with Stanley and Jack. I was like, yeah, they're like, we're getting ready to cross the Darien. We want you to come here and do it with us. I didn't really, it really, I think I paused to like check and make sure it was like, like not a prank number, but I was like, yeah, I'll do that. And so I figured out, I booked a flight and I went down to Columbia. The Darien Gap is a completely different thing. I will say the Darien is incredibly beautiful. It is one of the only untouched jungles in the world. And it's just a swath of like, I think total if you break it down around like 120 square miles, it's not incredibly large, but the pathway is about 67 to 70 miles that they go through following the rivers. My experience of what it was like there, I saw a mother and child die in a river within the third night we were getting robbed by a group of people with machetes. It was five of them. And I fled into the jungle out of fear. I thought like I would fight for people no matter what. And I would, I'd put my life on the line for it. But when it came to like the five people there and I knew like they, when they realized I was an American, they told me to go get in the tent. I heard the people outside screaming. There's a zipper on the back of the tent. I just grabbed what stuff was there with me, which was my camera, one, one, uh, my one bag and my hammock. I stuffed it in there and I bolted. So you follow a river the entire time and it's just in this like canopy of the jungle. It's super thick. And I just ran in the middle of the night as fast as I could. And I found out then that the woman that was in the group, she was raped in front of the husband. And I had laid there for over a day uh, after I ran into the jungle, just hiding, afraid of what was going to happen. I think that weighed on me really heavy, just hearing a scream and knowing like maybe I could have done something but the thing is when you're in that jungle there is no doing something uh it really does become you're in how you need to get out fast like everything there wants to kill you it's completely dangerous there are people there that just there's no government interaction they do like Panama does send special forces in uh, and they do a line to try to like move through now that there's such a high number but when you have people moving through with thousands of dollars on them because they don't carry like well, we're leaving like whatever country you're from we're going through the Central America and Mexico they just carry it in cash on them and people learn this and people are carrying sometimes upwards of six thousand dollars and they can get it in US dollars on them you're moving through 800 through a thousand people a day if everybody of a thousand people is only carrying like four thousand dollars that's a lot of money if you just rob a couple people it's grueling. I've watched people, somebody gets really worn down and hurt, and they're in a group that have traveled all the way up until the point to Nicocli, but these people can't wait for them. So they like, know we have to keep going. Like, please get up. And they'll try for a little bit. People all, when I got so sick after like the rock, so I lost my water purifier and all my food. And people try to give me a little bit here and there. Uh, but when I drank from that river, I got extremely sick and I couldn't keep anything down. It was coming out always. And people were like, you have to walk. And they were trying to give me like crackers or whatever. But any food I put in my body for four days just came up. 
and people just had to move on. And I understand, and they do that unless you are your wife or your child, which I've heard stories that maybe they've left them, but I didn't see any of that. They've always like, we'll just carry you. Who you are doesn't matter. What you're doing doesn't matter. When you're in the jungle, getting out is the only thing that matters. And to see the people go through that, to see, I mean, the experience to have to go through walking with, through a river that hits like the middle of my chest at six foot two, and you're holding the rope and watching like it just sweep a child away and instantly die. It's a rock wall climbing around the part that you watch the one there was a dead by the bottom where somebody slipped and that's somebody that was with somebody else and you can't do anything you just have to keep moving yeah so i think i saw a total of nine bodies that were already dead bloated and stuff some intense people just leave tents up one night when it was raining and that's after like i was already sick i managed to get a little bit i was crawl as far as i could and it's raining it was the nighttime and just yelled i was like hey i'm gonna sleep in this tent next to you and it stopped raining like towards like a horrible smell and like i like crawled out and what i saw was a tent with a person's legs hanging out when i was coming in during the rain and what i saw if it stopped raining was it was just a person that was dead and purple and completely bloated uh so i crawled away like again i was really sick so i just did like a type of crawl too weak to really walk what they go through is absolutely horrible and what other choices they have? And people, I hate when people are like, well, if they've been living in like South America, why can't they just stay there? Well, it wasn't ideal. They're barely getting by. And they left during a crisis that happened years ago. And it was always the goal to move further on to where they had a potential chance for a better life here in the States. But it takes time. They took everything they had to get from Haiti to South America. And then built up enough to finally try to hopefully make through knowing that all every single government along the way is going to take money from them, that they might get robbed, that they have to have food and be able to sustain. And when they make to the border, they know that they're going to have to get something to keep weight for a while. So they took the time to save all this money up. Uh, but staying there isn't really a great option. Like there is no opportunity and the numbers only grow more and more. And while not just the U.S., but the world over as a whole, they're against migration. They're against people coming into like the idea of like, well, this is our country and they're coming here and taking it. That's not only in the U.S., it's in other countries. And now as like it gets up in the world news and people bring highlight instead of sympathy over that, these countries have already been like harboring and letting them stay in these places to work. Racism is coming out towards them and more so towards black people, black migrants. There's so many shelters I've been to where they just don't want black migrants staying there. You'd be like, well, well, no, they have another shelter. They can stay over there. Like, it's okay. But why? Why are you separating them? Their entire journey is met with these issues. Uh, but the Darien, sorry, is 67 miles, grueling miles, in and out of river the entire time. So you're never dry. You have cartel, you have everything that wants to like hurt you. A snake said if they kill you, you might as well sit down and smoke cigarettes. That's about as much time as you have to live before you just die from it. The scorpions, the thorns from the trees, that if you get pricked, you'll get extremely sick. People don't go with water purifiers. Uh, now, they might have a tolerance to certain parasites because they're, they've lived within a certain region longer. But just like me... There's these complications that happen later down the road from being in the Darien. I'm not sure how many people go untreated. Maybe they don't hit the same level because, like, others had to drink from the river as well. And it, you don't have a choice not to drink from there. Uh, I came with a water purifier. Now, I lost mine. But beforehand, I was fine. I was filling up everybody's jugs. as well, like, stop here. Drink this. It'll purify. It's going to be better for you. But in general, people don't have that option. So you have what happens there. And then there's thousands and thousands that have what's happening to me now that move beyond that. That's a really tough story. And thank you so much for sharing it with us because it definitely taught us a lot about Black migrants. You're familiar with Bi the Biden administration's recent actions where they're like using Title 42 to expel mm -hmm. Haitian migrants uh, from, uh, from migrant camps. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you tell us what your opinion is of these actions? And if you had the platform to speak to the Biden administration about these actions, what would you say to them? 
Here's a bit of background info before you go on to hear Nathaniel's answer. Biden recently announced that he would re-implement the Trump-era migrant protection protocols, otherwise known as the Remain in Mexico program. Under the policy, the U.S. government will send asylum seekers back to Mexico to await their hearings. This policy places migrants in danger by making them at risk to violence from drug trafficking cartels. A report by Human Rights First, published in August of 2021, notes that 6,356 violent attacks against migrants in Mexico have been registered since January, including rape, kidnapping, and human trafficking. In addition, Biden reinstated another Trump-era policy, Title 42, which allows the government to rapidly expel thousands of migrants during public health emergencies without due process of applying for asylum. According to U.S. Customs and Border Protection data, between October 2020 and August 2021, nearly one million migrants were expelled. I think it's absolutely horrible. From the moment he took office, they were already deporting 600 to 900 black migrants and Haitians per day. Uh, It's not something that he enacted later on down the road. This has been happening. When you heard about what happened in Texas with the black migrants, those are my friends from Tijuana. I sat with dinner with over half of those people where they stayed at, and they were told, and I don't know where they get these sources. I don't even get that. They were told, hey, They're actually letting people cross over, but you have to go over to Del Rio. What could I say to the Biden administration? I never was naive to think that him or Kamala would be good people. Are they better than Trump? Yeah, they don't openly spout racism and horrible things that ignite the people that are already racist to want to be vocal about those things. But they've always been problematic. Obama has been problematic. This idea that we just bring this these people into office and they're like, well, we'll fix it. And then we sit back idly and we complain about this person that was voted in. I wouldn't want to speak to Biden. I wouldn't want to speak to any person that takes on the title of president because at the end of the day, it's not going to do any good. We need to be able to address and get hold of the masses. People need to stop thinking, oh, well, I cast my vote, so my work is done. When Black and Lives Matters thing happen, and I am not going to sit here and talk bad about anything, But these people go up and, well, we protested for two weeks. I had people reach out to me like, hey, we finally got tear gas. We know what it's like, Nate. Like, we're in solidarity together. Like, we can, we know it's like to be tear gas like you. Like, well, what are you doing now? Like, well, I have, and it's such a, like, I don't want to say, because people do have lives and they have bills and things to go against, but you can't do one action. And I'm not going to, I don't want to say it's small, but then think, well, we did that. So the change has to come after. It's a constant thing. I'm so worn down, but. I don't get the option to stop. These films come out and they do great. That would be absolutely amazing, but it's not going to cause the change we want until people can unify together and just recognize humanity for humanity to see that like equality does not work on a sliding scale. Nothing's going to happen. The idea I would tell Biden, like, what would I tell him? I don't know because Anybody that thought that he was going to do anything differently was just going to be wrong. Like, he was never going to do things differently. This was always something. I could send you a screenshot of, like, when he was running. I was like, okay, now that Bernie's out. And Bernie is not some far left. Bernie is, like, barely left of conservative. But we've gone so far right that this idea of, like, helping people is considered radical as a nation, as a as a species, this idea of we're all sliding like right, not all, but uh, they spout Biden is a far left. He's going to take away like he wants to like shut down the police and everything. And so these right people they are like, oh, yeah. And they think him is the far left when he's basically like center right. And that becomes the idea of like him. So when the next Republican like president comes in, they'll be like, well, we're going to be better than him. We're going to push our like our traditional beliefs and the Republican view, and it'll be further right. But it won't seem like that because we're keep on slowly nudging everything over towards the right. And in the mix of all that, like basic human decency, human equality is getting lost in that. I don't know if that answers correct or answers what you would want. But yeah, I, I don't I wouldn't want to speak to Biden. 
there would be nothing to get through to him because he's always been that person. And the idea that speaking to him or like showing him anything would change his stance on anything. We need to change the people because we as the people are the ones that need to start making actions. So I know that you have talked to other platforms um, about your story with the Darien Gap and your foundation. How have you seen, because I, I, I did not know about the Darien Gap until I researched you and I spoke to you. And I'm sure that most of the American public do not know what Haitian and Black migrants go through to get to better lives. Do you think that the influence of, like, you know, telling your story um, of informing the media about what refugees, what migrants go through would better their situation, would better um, people's opinions of them? I think sharing my story does help to an extent, uh, but I don't want it to be about me. My story is mine. This isn't one about migration. No, I don't think the overall. It'll have 15 minutes of change and people will move on to the next thing. I think the first start to really creating change is we need to connect the people with these stories, with the people that are going through it. To an extent, I did go through it to where I wasn't just a humanitarian anymore. Like I was faced, uh, there's parts I don't know about openly talking about things, really bad things happened. And some things like it was self-defense or the lives of me and like six other people could have been lost. You can form an idea of what that's about. People reading about my story, it did bolster more news people like, oh, we want to go down and get a story that we want to go capture that. It's, It's good to an extent people do understand they learn what it is, but we're always looking through the lens of an outsider. When... I say I have a problem with media, and I'm not going to say like fake news or anything like that, but I mean media overall, left, right, whatever your spectrum is, it's told from your lens and your perspective. If people on the left want to showcase, like, I want to really show pity and sympathy for these people, and they'll get those really sad stories, Uh, and the right want to get the really bad stories. I had somebody that like sent me a donation, and they reached out, they're like, hey, you're putting some stuff up on social media. And the thing is, like, the kids were laughing and playing soccer and having fun. And, you know, what? I thought they were supposed to be going through this, like, humanitarian crisis. And none of them really looked like they're all that sad about their situation. And, I mean, I was appalled by it. But I asked them, I was like, do you want to see people just, like, crying? Do you want to see those Sarah McLaughlin video with her singing and, like, whatever about sad puppies or sad people in poverty? And they just look all downtrodden. Uh, one of the best things that I love about the working in migration and with asylum seekers and refugees refugees is hope one of the most beautiful things in this world is hope and no matter what these people go through they find a reason they find the hope for that like you know what it's really bad today but tomorrow it can be better and anybody that could take time if i could just bring everybody down and that is not sure about migrants about refugees asylum seekers and let them spend time with people just three days have dinner with them like they're good people but what they've endured and what they've gone through that people can never imagine i've done it in sections i've done these like la bestia the caravanas going traveling through living in the streets uh because when i travel one of the biggest rules for me is i have to live by the means of the people i can't go to a hotel afterwards i can't go like all right well i want to go get a nice meal whatever means they live by when i'm working with them i want them to know at all times i'm not above you i'm not your boss we're equals we're both humans and we i come at this exact same level so i think i get a a perspective that a lot of humanitarians don't because they it's not they don't have compassion they don't care but i integrate into the lives the way they do because i want to i don't know why i think maybe it's because i was homeless uh that i want to like for me to understand because it's not benefiting the film Uh, maybe the trust level, but media, I don't know. I don't think it does a little bit of good, but overall it's a perspective from an outsider. That's why I really do hope that I can get these films all together, put them out and it's filmed by and told by and created. The only difference, like I do edit it, but I speak to them on WhatsApp. I show like, Hey, this is where I'm at. Like, what do you think about this? Would you want to change? I have these other things. Uh, They help me through the process of the editing But besides the editing, it's a story filmed, narrated, and told by the people. 
that are living in the issue. And I hope, I genuinely hope that people can look past it. It's not going to be pro level quality of filming. I give them completely like a Canon C300 Mark III, a $13,000 camera, the R5, full on audio gear. They have completely pro level gear, but I can only, I only have a set amount of time to train them and teach them how to do it. So I hope the story does come above everything else that they can just there's a connection that i can't bring the entire world to these like migrant camps to go on these journeys but maybe i can connect them through media maybe that can bypass and finally change the narrative and lift it up because media lacks on that media is always going to be the perspective of the person holding the lens that's a really incredible mission. And this is a side question, but is there anything that Seeking Refuge can do um, to like, you know, support you and your mission? If you could like help advertise your films or anything? I mean, yeah, The when I get to that point right now, honestly, so I'm here with the Aztecna uh, or the Carrizo Kamakuro tribe of Texas. And they're like my family uh, and they do a lot for asylum seekers and then also for indigenous rights, this, the original people of Texas. But they're helping me get to a place I have not fully integrated into post and editing right now because I've been trying to sort through a lot of trauma and depression. Like I said, the Darien happened and then it just seems like everything from the last two and a half years fell on topic. So I've never stopped to just like breathe through everything I go through. I just, oh, I got to keep going. And I don't know, it just all, so I haven't for the last two months. I've been trying to just get my personal self together and now my health as well, because I got in question from uh, the Darien. I am going to be moving to the park. I have some friends I'm going to help try to get people to help with translating all the footage from the migrants to get it transcribed and start putting it together as the film. So I need to work on that. And that could be something if anybody was ever interested, like helping just translate from Spanish. Haitian Creole is really tricky to find people that like can translate that. But even all the Spanish stuff and get it transcribed and ready for editing because I have two and a half years of work that I have to condense into an hour and 30, hour and 45 minutes now. We're nearing the end of our interview. Uh, is there anything that you want to mention or talk about before we end the interview? I would think most people that listen to your podcast already have the heart for issues for refugees, asylum seekers, migrants, and there's different titles, but they're all, and there is a difference between asylum seekers, migrants, and refugees. But uh, I think if people are genuinely interested, find ways that you can connect. There are so many needs. I think the people that made it to the States that are not even struggling now, well, they're not trying to seek us. They have it now. Uh, there's so many needs out there. I do like a Facebook messenger group with like a group of the kids that I've worked with where I help them with English and moving through. But a lot of these people that get here and it's not over now just because they're there. If you can find a local resource where maybe they're within your city or your area that you can reach out and do help, anything helps them. I don't know. A lot of the kids talk to me about hard it, how hard it is the transition to finally they're here. They did all this journey and now they're in the States and they still feel alone. Now, more so than ever, when you're in that momentum of doing this, it's like, okay, you have the hope. But now that you're here, you realize that you are from a different place. You have a different way of culture and belief of growing up and trying to integrate into that. Unfortunately, suicide rates do go up with people like this. It's good to learn about this, but find out what you can do locally. Connect on a personal level if it is at all possible. If you can't, it, that's understandable. Uh, but if it is possible, there's a lot of people out there that need help. And it's more than just sending out like some clothes or some money. People just to feel like, hey, you're welcome and you belong. Like Make them part of something. Thank you so much. Um, and Aiden has uh, two questions to ask you. Oh, yeah, of course. So you mentioned this in the answer that you were just gave, talking about like, you just mentioned briefly like the difference between um, asylum seekers, refugees, and migrants. So we're about to get into um, a season where we're talking about asylum seekers more, but I think it can be really confusing to people understanding that people can be forced to migrate and be forced migrants without necessarily meeting the legal category of refugee. So how would you explain the difference? Or do you have any examples of people who are forced migrants who 
wouldn't necessarily be refugees under like the UNHCR's definition. It's such a hard thing. Uh, so I think about Carla and her family and they left from Honduras because of the droughts and they're seeking asylum for work because they have none. They lost the means for their agriculture. Uh, you have Haitians after the unrest. It, well, first you had the earthquake and everything that happened. And a lot of those that moved to South America, they lost the opportunity. Oh, man, no, I'm sorry. I honestly trying to break that out right now in my brain. I'm sitting out front of the doctor's place right now. Oh, You're wait, good. It's a, it's a really um, tricky conversation. Um, that's just something that's been on my mind a lot lately I think because it's really it's it's really difficult to think through just by yourself and then it's even harder to explain um especially when Americans use like a lot of us haven't um like people that were born in the states haven't experienced things like that specifically usually well a lot of people associate refugees like so what happened like Afghanistan like oh, we have to flee these people out. They're being killed and they're being murdered. And it's direct. We can see that they're bombs and there's people shooting. Uh, so they have to get out of there right now and they can see that. But they don't see the long-term death and corruption and policies and politics and the leaders that slowly push them down. And it's done to a level, which happens here in the United States even, but not obviously not in countries like this. They don't see the long haul, the long-term damages that happen that push these people further and further into poverty to where they don't have anything and they fear and they have to pay extra taxes. So they flee because they don't have anything to do, but you don't see it as directly as you would on that. And they're seeking asylum for that. They are seeking asylum where, hey, my country persecutes people for being trans. I'm a trans person. I can't come out and I can't live as who I want to be because of the politics we have in place. Therefore, my life is in danger. Now, people don't automatically see that. And they're like, well, what's the same? And that would come into a difference of a refugee versus an asylum seeker. Migrants is a very loose term because humanity migrates. We're built here after, besides stolen land, but on the fact that we migrated for a place, you could say we were refugees or asylum seekers because of the persecution of the people within Europe wanting to come for a better opportunity. But you could also just say migration. And there's also a different issue with the word migrants of sometimes we'll take people that could technically like a lot of Syrians, for example, when they cross the Mediterranean will be labeled as migrants, even though those people meet the legal definition for refugees. But then if you call them migrants, it delegitimizes their need to leave. So then you see that in the media as well, the misuse of that word. And I think that's probably why it's really prevalent in conversations around Central America. I agree. I also was just kind of asking, I know you were talking about the Darien Gap, but um, what was your experience like with the caravan or the caravana? With caravanas? Uh, it's a lot. It is, how do we explain the feeling? I mean, I talk to these people, so many, even the ones that were deported back almost daily. Traveling with caravanas, I go to like Honduras, El Salvador. Uh, we, thousands of people, we start walking, we hitchhike. We get on the backs of trains, uh, semi-trucks sometimes get in, like people pull together and get like a bus or whatever, and you move through and you just keep going. And sometimes there's the places that will take people in to help and feed them and give them a spot to bathe. And sometimes we just sleep in the middle of the streets or somewhere in a field somewhere and keep moving forward and hoping that some government's not going to like block the way and keep like hinder us from continuing towards the U.S.-Mexico border. It's exhausting. But it's also fun some. But I feel so weird saying like, hey, it's fun sometimes because when people listen to this and you're seeing it from an outside view, you don't want to hear it's fun. Like, that's, I thought it's supposed to be hard. But like I said earlier, people carry hope. And I think it's one of the best things. I There was a few days, like, it was grueling hot. Everybody was sweating. All of a sudden, there was, like, a river with a deep hole in there. And, like, 30 of us, like, look at each other, like, just nod our heads, like, okay. And as sad and as horrible with it's going through there's still moments of happiness and that's what again what i said i love about them and hope but just like stripping down to underwear and jumping into this river and just splashing around for like 20 minutes throwing our clothes getting them wet and then continuing to walk 
laying around at night eating like the cheese and tortillas and just laughing while people sing songs or just tell stories. Sometimes I feel I worry about saying talking about the good memories that people be like, well, it's obvious I'm not that every I'm fine. But yeah, I'll just keep repeating. They have hope and hope means that you find the good in the horrible situations, knowing that things will get better. It's challenging. It's grueling. I've watched people get seriously hurt, dehydrated, left behind. I've had many run-ins with narcos and cartel, especially because I have cameras. So it's scary, but I've been completely lucky, like lucky to the government. What they did was wrong, but forcing me to then like, okay, well, I'm going to just focus all my time on asylum seekers and on migration and on refugees and just like, I'm going to focus on like really understanding this, not just a small glimpse and like get sharing this with the world. I learned a lot more about humanity and about hope and about resilience, about family, about caring. People with nothing were worried about me and breaking apart their food to give me food. And we would do, we all do the same for each other. We would be so lucky to have these people as our neighbors. I don't know how best to describe it otherwise. They're really good. I've met some of the best people from Caravanas. That was Nathaniel Dennison, CEO of the Through Our Eyes Foundation, talking to us about his experiences with asylum seekers and migrants in Central and South America, as well as at the U.S.-Mexico border. If you'd like more information, please visit his website linked in our show notes. If you liked this episode, please be sure to like, subscribe, and comment below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com or at sosrpa at mailbox.sc.edu. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Refuge Podcast. Reach out to us if you'd like to talk or you have questions or topics you'd like us to cover. This will be our last episode of 2021, so we are wishing everyone happy holidays. We will be back in late January 2022 with our next season. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.